0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. Attachment conditioning happens early. Human beings are born, uh, in comparison to other animals, quite early or quite prematurely. Uh... A great ape at birth has the capacity of an 18-month-old human baby. Human babies are entirely dependent on the care that they receive to survive. And their brains, all of our brains are, uh, in some sense, underdeveloped. So we are one of the few um, beings on the planet where the physical structure of our brain is actually affected by the environment in which we live. So when we talk about doing attachment work and attachment repair, we're not talking about developing a natively secure brain. We're talking about affecting the strategies that we have to work with the the brain that we, we ended up with through conditioning. we can talk about attachment conditioning and what it provides for us is insight into the nature of view and so that this is very useful in terms of deepening your practice you remember the eightfold path the first of the eightfold path is right view to understand what a view is like are you aware that you have a 75% chance of living your entire life with the same attachment strategy that you had when you were 10 months old. Do you remember the first year of life? You don't, because you didn't have the brain. The brain wasn't developed enough to make the memories. None of us remember it. But the procedural memory that responded to that early conditioning did grow those things in there. I was at a conference at Harvard last year, and there was a paper presented that they're doing fMRI scans on infants and they're noticing that the first attachment related structures in the brain begin to form between two and five months and by the time you're ten months old you have the whole structure and by the time you're two years old it's pretty fixed and uh, when you go through the process of puberty the brain moves from a child brain into an adult brain and the capacity to grow and change is radically reduced in this everything that isn't connected, you know a child's brain is a a mass a warren of these disconnected axions and so children can absorb amazingly quickly information because the, the the, the wetware is available to learn it. But when you go through puberty, everything that's not connected is radically pruned back to the barest scaffolding of things that are connected. And then it really becomes hard at that point to shift these things. If you didn't get good enough care as a child, What do you think you did wrong at two months old? What do you think you could have done better at two months old to have elicited better care for yourself? I say this so that we can begin to remove blame from this. Blame either of yourself or of your caregivers. Do you think that your caregivers intended to do their best for you when you were a child? It's only a very, very small proportion of caregivers who don't intend that. You have an 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your primary caregiver has. So what usually happens to people is that their caregivers do the very best for them that they can. And what they do is they transfer the uh, attachment experience that they had uh, to their uh, children with the best intentions. Some attachment strategies work better than others, but I, I want to really emphasize that 70% of attachment outcomes are in the totally normal range and are not in any way pathological. It's just the ordinariness of it. It's about 30% that are uh, problematic. Uh, And this is factoring the whole population. If you look at uh, affluent populations, it's quite different. Uh, it's less than five percent in in affluent populations where the uh, attachment outcomes are bad is that making sense so poverty is an indicator of insecure attachment result because the the stress of poverty is so great it affects the mind states of the uh, caregivers it's also uh, attachment is a response to meeting the the material needs of the infant and People who grow up in poverty often aren't able to do that even though their intention would be able to do that. When they did the initial studies of attachment, they were all done at elite universities. What do you know about elite universities? You have to function pretty well to get into them in the first place, right? But in a, in a affluent uh, Sample: 65% of people have secure attachment, 15% have dismissing attachment, 15% have preoccupied attachment, and about 5% of people are disorganized. In the general population, 30% of people are secure, 20% are dismissing, 20% are preoccupied, and 30% are disorganized. I know that uh, if you don't have a real familiarity with attachment, you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the different categories. But that's fine. I'm just trying to plant seeds, and I will explain in in great detail uh, what these uh, different categories mean. By the time you are 10 months old, you have reacted to the presentation of your caregiver's uh, and created a working model of yourself, which is related to your own competency to get your needs met. And you have, will, will have developed a working model of what you can expect from the world. And if you don't pay attention to these views, they become quite fixed. And then you go about your day as if these things were true and immutable and unchangeable the thing about view is that it's so compelling is that if you had all sorts of choices available to you but your view was fixed you would only see the choices that match your view and so one of the great sorrows of coming into these kinds of insights is that you often see that a lot of the things that you wanted over the course of your life uh, you didn't take even though they were available to you the good news of course is that if you can see into this and open up the capacity to see more clearly what's actually happening in front of you, you can begin to take them now. But we all have to start from where we are. The class is going to cover attachment material, it's going to cover emotional regulation, and it's going to cover Instructions in how to function in secure relationships or what the skill set of secure relationships are. We learn uh, typically in childhood the skill set that's associated with the family system and how the family system operates. And if the family system doesn't use secure strategies, then you may not have learned them. Metagroup is associated with Dan Brown. Dan Brown is a meditation teacher in the Tibetan tradition, um, but he's also a psychologist, and he teaches at uh, the Harvard Medical School in the psychiatric department. And he's one of three groups, or his group is one of three groups in the world that have developed uh, attachment repair strategies. Mary Main and Eric Hesse are probably the two most prominent attachment researchers in the world are at Berkeley, so they're uh, quite handy for you if you wanted to pursue that more information from them. Uh, Mary Main was Mary Ainsworth assistant uh, at John Hopkins where the original attachment research was done. And Understand how new this uh, uh, pursuit of attachment investigation is. It was really released only about seven years ago to the therapeutic community to to begin to develop strategies for repair. Up until that time, it was still in the research phase. John Bowlby uh, presented to the world his uh, attachment theory in 1983 in a series of lectures. So we're really in the first 30 years of this investigation, but there's already been more than 1,200 studies that validate the, the perception. So in terms of hard science, uh, this is about as good as it gets. Uh, I was listening to Dan Brown talk, and he said that in the East, we talk of miracles, and that that's the thing that gets people excited and willing to practice because they... They believe that miracles can happen. But in the West, if you talk about miracles, people think you're crazy. And what we like to talk about is hard science. That's the thing that really gets us excited to practice. Um, I was um, just in Myanmar, and um, I went to see a Sayadaw, and he looked at me deeply, and he said, I'm going to give you this talisman which is going to protect you for the next seven months because you're going to have great difficulty. Um, Here it is. (laughs) Do not take it off, he said. He said, then what I want you to do is not cut your hair or nails for two weeks. And then cut them and wrap them up in a shirt that you own. And then wrap the shirt up in a pair of pants that you own. And then throw it into the river. And if you do that, you'll be okay. I'm waiting for them to grow. So I'm at the airport, I'm saying goodbye to my guide, and the last thing he says to me is, don't forget to cut your nails and your hair and wrap them up and throw them into a river. It's vitally important that you do that. So I'm going to do it. Because, what? I live in Los Angeles. There's one that runs right down the center of the city. (laughs) It looks like a parking lot, but that's (laughs) what we've done to it, not what it once was. Um, My guide uh, um, does not eat beef because when he was a child... Um, he uh, he grew up in rural Myanmar in a bamboo house and um, there are some snakes in Myanmar where if you're bitten by one they just begin the death chant they don't do anything else and he was in his house and Um, He was a a child, maybe five or six, and one of those snakes was coiled and ready to strike. And his cat attacked the snake and saved him at the cost of its own life. Um, And so he went to the Buddha and he uh, renounced beef for the rest of his life in gratitude to his cat. How do you make sense of that kind of thinking from our western scientific pers- perspective right even though uh, he is absolutely adamant that he, uh, he won't eat beef um, maybe there's some vegans nodding in appreciation <laughs> here but We're not comfortable with that way of seeing or being in the world, even though there's a a vast majority of people who tend to to think about it that way. We tend to think about it scientifically, and and we get as fixed in our views as they can get fixed in theirs. I just want you to understand these are views, and and they arise based on conditions. We're, We're conditioned in that way when convenient. After all, we've just learned that the sound of uh, windmills causes cancer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about mentalizing or metacognition, thinking about thinking. This is very useful in terms of your meditation practice because it it helps you to see what arises and what you make it into and also allows you to understand the distortion of it, if there's any distortion built into it. Mentalizing is a skill that you would have learned as an infant in the first few months of life if you had an attentive enough caregiver. And if you didn't have an attentive enough caregiver, you may not have learned it, and you may not have been able to pick it up along the way. And so I'm going to describe it in quite a, a structured way. When we look at the, um, the, the model to repair attachment, uh, the group at Harvard talks about... Um, um, Repairing the imagination in in the sense of the capacity to have good care in life. They call it reparenting. And then we have the capacity to mentalize is the second aspect of repair. We don't, uh, in our approach, use the mentalizing strategies that the Harvard group uses. We use the one from the Rome group. Uh, which is uh, uh, Jeffrey Young. He's he's actually based in New York, and we use his model of uh, mentalizing um, and fixed view uh, to describe the adult activity of that. And then we use Peter Fonagy, who's with the Tavistock Group in London, for the the early developed child uh, mentalizing stuff. I think it's important to have these, or at least for me, one of the things that was most appealing to me about Buddhism was lists—lots of lists—and uh, and so I like to use lists. I'm uh, expanding that to include lists of thoughts of other people. Um, so uh, I'm going to describe a, a simple to remember working model of mentalizing so that you can begin to examine whether you do that kind of mentalizing or not and then what you begin to notice is that certain attachment strategies have some of the skills of active mentalizing and deficits in other areas and then that points you in the direction of what your actual attachment functioning is so we'll do the use the Peter Fonagy Anthony Bateman description of the early childhood uh, mentalizing capacity, and then move into talking about uh, Jeffrey Young's approach to the nature of uh, fixed views and how that affects mentalizing in uh, people with an adult capacity to think. Um, they're called schemas in Jeffrey Young's work, and they're frameworks or working models that we hold. Uh, one of the things that uh, John Bowlby, who was the originator of the attachment theory, talked about was th- these working models that we develop uh, that create the, the sense of self in each moment and create the sense of the world in each moment. If we talk about traditional Buddhist thought, this is uh, the sense of self uh, is called self, and this and the sense of the world is meant to mean other people. So we, as human beings, are meant to be in relationship to other human beings. Biologically, our nervous systems are set up in such a way that we are emotionally regulated by other people, and that we don't actually do very well emotionally regulating ourselves. In fact. The attachment mechanism, that original attachment mechanism is the system to propel you to connect to other people. In humans, the first attachment expression in infants happens around 42 minutes after birth. It's the, one of the most primary and it's the first one to come online. And in babies, it's this sort of reflexive smile almost uh, sometimes like a grimace but it's this wide-eyed smile at anything that moves I like to say you know that the only way that you can survive in this world is if you look damn cute and you get somebody to take care of you right? that's what infants do They, they smile and they light up with delight whenever they see something move so that that something that's moving will come And take care of them If nobody comes What happens? Then you'll notice a look of confusion Over the face of the infant And if nobody comes They'll whimper And if nobody comes They'll let out an intermittent cry And if nobody comes They'll cry continuously And if nobody comes They'll go into tantrum mode Shrieking Creating huge noise Because if nobody comes, they're going to die, right? That's the level of intensity. But what happens if nobody comes in tantra mode? Then they shut down everything. All systems just shut off to preserve energy, to wait. So that's the the cycle. And this is the same cycle that we all faced in infancy. And depending on how attentive your caregiver is. They could have interrupted you at any of those cycles if every time you looked really cute, they just picked you up. You have a whole different experience of life than if you ended up at the end of the cycle shut down in stasis mode, waiting for somebody to come and attend to you or anywhere along the lines. We do a lot of uh, sleep training of infants in this society because everybody has to work because of the inequality in our system. This is not for the benefit of the infant. This is for the benefit of the adults that we do that. And it can be done skillfully or unskillfully. So we work on the reparenting. Dan Brown, because he's a meditation teacher, is the one that we like to work with because all of his interventions are meditation-based. MetaGroup is a meditation organization, not a Western psychology organization. And so all of the interventions that we offer are also meditation-based. And we have designed a series of uh, exercises in, that are meditation-based that, that will take you through learning metacognition and also emotional regulation, which is really important. Um, and we, But we do believe in the psychoeducation. We want you to understand uh, what secure functioning relationships are like and then what skills you need in order to be in them. Uh, and what skills are not useful for that, so that you, if you're using them, you can discontinue using them. Most of us will have learned dutifully as good children how to operate in the world from our family system be in, at an age before uh, we really remember learning it. What water, ask the fish. It's always been like that. We've always done it like that. They've always done it like that in our family systems. It seems so completely normal that most of the time none of it is even questioned. It's just how you do it. And this is an interesting um, opening around uh, the sense of self in the traditional Buddhist thing. We are this activity, this response to the world based on our conditioning and we just respond it's, all, it's mostly automatic and so what we're trying to do is move into uh, an awareness of the activities that we engage in and watch them from a place of awareness not from identified self I'm doing this again it's intrinsic to my self experience it's always going to be like this, this is, is not a good view The view is from awareness, oh, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing this based on my conditioning, and I can affect my conditioning, and so I'll begin to respond differently from that. In Western terms, we would talk about imagination in that sense. So this first pillar um, of repair is around working with imagination and uh, removing the pinches that happen in childhood, often we're capable of imagining an alternative to what's available to us, but in doing so, it, it's experienced as painful. And so we begin to pinch off the capacity to imagine alternatives to the things that we can have. When we go, uh, when we move from childhood into adult life, There's no process that removes those self-imposed limitations, even though as an adult you have much more agency to get the things that you want. You still believe, because as a child you couldn't get them, that they're not available to you, even though they may be now. And so this, this part of the repair is to open up the imagination so that you can really begin to feel deeply what it is that you want, what has meaning to you, so that you can see the possibilities in the present moment that you have been screening from yourself to avoid the pain of not being able to get them when you were a child. Is that making sense? In order to do that, you need to be able to regulate the emotional experience that likely comes from that response. So in level one, we're not going to talk too much about this first Process Of opening up um, The imagination Because we want you to have A set of base, basic understandings And uh, basic meditation skills In order to be able to do that effectively So that's part of the level 2 training And so we're going to talk about The structure of uh, mentalizing And also about uh, emotion And how to emotionally regulate uh, are you able to mentalize your emotional experience well enough to know that you have an emotional response to the present moment that you have a thought process that is meant to regulate emotions that you're aware of the empathetic experience of other people and that you're also aware of uh, any trauma or somaticized emotional experience that you might have and that you can keep them distinct and separate from each other so that, and also monitor the interaction between them so that you can have an accurate reflection of what's actually happening to you in the moment. What, you'll, what you may uh, notice is that that is available to you or it's not available to you, and that also would be reflective of your attachment outcome. Different attachment strategies have different ways of relating to emotion, Secure people tend to be able to mentalize those aspects of emotion right out of the gate with no intervention. Dismissing people usually have almost no awareness at all of emotion in the body. Sometimes they don't have any aware intellectually of what they're feeling. Preoccupied people tend to lose track of their own emotions, but they they have a sense of what the other person is feeling. And, and disorganized people are... are uh, Um, Often in the experience of overwhelming emotion Which impedes them from functioning well in the world So the emotional regulation piece is really important A lot of us in the West tend to use self-anger Or self-criticism or self-judgment As a way of regulating our experience This tends to produce anger or sadness A lot of us use catastrophizing is a way of regulating which puts us in fear states a lot of the time so we want to examine closely uh, what's beneficial and what isn't beneficial um, we use the term repress uh, afflictive strategies and in western psychology uh, repression has a bad, bad name <clears throat> But the Buddha uh, says That you should not allow yourself To think unskillful thoughts And that you should stop them And if you can't stop them You should stop and replace them And if you can't stop and replace them You should annihilate them Forcefully Um, If you don't monitor your thinking process You may not even be aware of what you do and when you begin to monitor you may be surprised at uh, what it is that you do. So part of this process is going to be really having a good awareness of what you do and noticing the effect of what the thought processes have. And then if you use afflictive thought processes, replace them with something else. You're, you probably will not be able to just stop Thought processes that are meant to be emotionally regulating because the body mind doesn 't tolerate being dysregulated very well it 's always going to try and regulate everyone here is old enough to have already associated different thought strategies with uh, different responses to the present moment, and most of them are going to be based on your family system if you if you don 't know um, how you do it or you seem to be puzzled by that. Just go home and watch how people do it and and you'll likely do it in a similar way. Is that making sense? One of the the hopeful things about this, of course, is all, all of the ways that you are doing this are largely changeable so that you can move yourself into quite beneficial ways of being in the world. And you can also learn the skill set of secure functioning and move your relationship functioning into uh, the secure realm pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, What's harder to do is unwind the deep conditioning. And so that part uh, takes a lot of effort. Remember I said that you have a 75% chance of Living your entire life with the attachment strategy that you developed By the time you were 10 months old it's, it's very stable So you have to push really hard to get it to change But it is changeable You have a 70% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your great-grandmother And it's transgenerationally stable, this stuff When you think about how it's transmitted, if you have children and you're in a situation where something happens and you need to respond to it, the process of perceiving the present moment is there's the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it, and when there's contact, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. And it knows that through a process of perception, that undifferentiated vibratory uh, sensing experience is first evaluated for uh or pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? You want to know that your fingers have touched the hot stove. And so the the sensing experience is evaluated so that if if the fingers are being burned, the hand can withdraw from the heat before the processing uh, and the fixating into uh, understanding what it is. It takes a half a second for the body-mind to process something and and make it into a conscious thought. That would mean that your hand would be burned for another half second, even though you could have withdrawn it earlier if there was a mechanism to uh, establish that. then you have a database of previously experienced things or things that you've imagined that the present moment is compared to and if there's a close enough match, the present moment becomes that thing that's in the the database and if you don't have good mindfulness you can slip out of the experience of the present moment into the memory and then you're no longer in the present moment, you're in the experience of the memory with all of the limitations of the outcomes of that memory. And then all of the possibilities of outcomes that aren't within that memory system slip from view and you don't see them anymore. You just see the things that are in front of you.